the Trinity marks orthodoxy from unorthodoxy. That's how critical the doctrine of the Trinity is. While it's fundamental, it's also a perfect example of what Paul's been talking about in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2 as something that cannot be comprehended apart from the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. Human reason, therefore, and logic are incapable of helping us to understand the Trinity unaided. We have to have the Holy Spirit in order to do this. Logic nor human reason is going to cut it. I was with a Jehovah's Witness friend a little over 30 years ago having a wonderful conversation. And you, you know that Jehovah's Witnesses deny the doctrine of the Trinity, most, most specifically they're Arian, which means they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. But I was with this friend about 30 years ago having a conversation about theology, and he asked me if I thought that Jesus was God. This was long before I was in ministry. I was maybe only 14 years old or something at the time. That was 30 years ago. <laughs> so I was a young person, and we were having this conversation about theology, and he asked me this question, do you believe that Jesus is God? I said, of course. Of course I do. I grew up in a Christian home. I knew Jesus was God. Then he said, so you would believe in the Trinity? Well, yeah. He said, is that something taught in the Bible? I said, yes, it is. And by now I'm getting confused. I know he's going somewhere with this. He's laying a trap for me. I don't know exactly where he's going. He then takes my Bible out of, actually it was laying on the coffee table, takes my Bible, picks it up, hands it to me. It says, do you believe that the Trinity is a biblical doctrine? I said, yes, I do. He said, well, then open up to me in the Bible the passages that mention the word Trinity, if you will. Well, of course, you can't do that because there are no passages that use the word Trinity. But even then, I knew enough to respond that although the word's not used, that the concept is certainly there. Now, some, instead of the word Trinity, like to use the word, Charles Riley being one of them, triunity. So sometimes in information that's written down about the Trinity, you'll see this word, triunity. Both of them are fine words. Ryrie prefers triunity. Other people prefer trinity. It doesn't matter. Just so you get the concept down. But if you see this, there's certainly no, nothing wrong with the term at all, as you'll see when we go forward. As this teaching, as I've said, is foundational to the Christian faith, I think it would be appropriate to articulate a precise definition from the beginning. And this is a precise definition of the Trinity. The Trinity is composed of three united persons without separate existence, so completely united as to form one God. The divine nature subsists, and that means exists, but the divine nature subsists in three distinctions, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is something that marks orthodoxy from unorthodoxy in Christianity. So I'm going to read it one more time. The Trinity is composed of three united persons, with a capital P, without separate existence, so completely united as to form one God. The divine nature subsists in three distinctions, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, there is an ancient diagram of the Trinity that goes way back to the early church fathers, and it's going to look something like this. This is an ancient diagram, but it is... Just as good today as it was back then, I think. And the diagram is of a triangle with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at each of the ends of the triangle. And the word God in the middle. Now, this is how they, the ancients described it. 
they drew arrows into the middle. The Father is God. The Son is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. And that's a great diagram, but that's not where they stopped. Because if they stopped, there would be other heresies. I'm going to talk about one in a moment that stopped there. They also realized that there's a distinction within the Trinity. Not only is there a unity, but there's a distinction. We also could use the words unity and diversity. There's a unity within the Trinity, and there's diversity within the Trinity, just like there's in the human race. We're all one in terms of the human race, but we, and we share humanness, but we're all certainly individuals. And again, no illustration is perfect, so don't take that one too far. But while the, the Son is God, the Father is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, they are all God, and there's a unity in that sense. There's also diversity. There's also a distinction, because the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. So this is a more complete diagram of the Trinity than this one. This one doesn't demonstrate the distinction, and there have been problems that have come from it. The members of the Trinity possess the same infinite perfections, but in three distinct persons. They have the same infinite perfections. This means that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all have the same essence. They all share the same attributes. All three, for example, are sovereign. All three members of the Trinity possess sovereignty, which means that God has the absolute and undisputable authority over every aspect of his creation. It means that he has the right to do whatever he wants to do with his creation. Some Christians have seen sovereignty so overemphasized that we like to act like God doesn't have sovereignty. That's not the answer. God has the absolute right to do whatever he wants to do with his creation. And you can relax because he's never going to act inconsistently with his other attributes. That's simplicity, remember. But we have to recognize the sovereignty of God. If we don't, that's heretical. It really is. Now, not necessarily any one particular person's view Calvin's or Arminius's or whoever, but we have to recognize that God is sovereign and has the right to do whatever he wants to with his creation. When Paul is arguing in Romans chapter 9 about sovereignty, that's one of the things that he says. Doesn't the potter have the right over the clay to make one a vessel of honor and one a vessel of dishonor? The key idea there is sovereignty. He has the right. That doesn't mean that he's going to act outside of his holiness or his love his compassion, his goodness. He's not going to act outside this, but yes, we have to say he does have the right. He's the boss with a capital B. I think that's the first thing we need to recognize in Christianity, that he's the boss, because so many of us are, want to be so independent. That's part of the American spirit, isn't it? Independent. But we don't want to carry that into the spiritual life to our detriment. God is sovereign. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all sovereign. They are part of a unity. The three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are also eternal. This means, and this is a mind blower, I recognize, that there was never a time when the three members of the Trinity did not exist. Never a time. And there never will be a time in the future when they don't exist. Nietzsche said, God is dead and we've killed him. God wrote Nietzsche back and said, sorry about that, you missed that, I'm still here. You didn't kill him. You can't kill me. You're a creature. I'm the creator. 
He's eternal. Isaiah 57, 15 declares, For this is what the High and Lofty One says, He who lives forever. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 says, We speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time began. This says that God pre-existed time. In the great high priestly prayer, Jesus prays in John chapter 17, verse 5, He declares, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Before the world began is before time began. So Jesus is proclaiming God's timelessness. He's eternal. Another of God's infinite perfections is his holiness. This means that God is completely unstained by sin. When we talk about God being eternal, being a mind blower, if we think about this one hard enough, he is completely unstained by sin. From eternity past, and that's just the word we use to describe this, to eternity future, God has never and will never do anything wrong. Has never, watch, has never and will never do anything wrong. Has never and will never do anything wrong. So this debunks right now this idea that is popular in many Christian circles. We've had people in our church that have preached it from the pulpit, and I, I recognize that, that say it's okay to get mad at God. He can handle it. He can handle a lot of things. But it doesn't mean it's okay. Because when we get mad at God, we are implying, at very least implying, sometimes we're saying it outright, that God did something wrong. We are. Otherwise, why get mad at him? You're not going to get mad at him for doing something right, are you? You don't discipline your children for doing the right thing. No. You discipline them for doing the wrong thing. So if we shake our fist at God and say, I can't believe you allowed that to happen, we're implying that what he did was wrong. And we're, we are going right straight up against the brick wall called his holiness. He's never done anything wrong. He's done things we don't understand. His timing is something that we don't understand sometimes. The prophets cried out, oh, Lord, how long? Remember Habakkuk, oh Lord, how long are you going to, go, going to let this unrighteousness go on in this country before you discipline it? He is perfectly holy. Exodus chapter 15, 11 states this, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Meaning, who among these pagan deities that the Canaanites worship? Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome in glory, working wonders. In Leviticus 11.44, God affirms, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I'm holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves on the ground. Another quotation from Leviticus chapter 11. The next verse adds, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore be holy because I am holy. And then in Leviticus 19 verse 2, he says, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Is it any wonder that many commentaries on Leviticus are entitled Leviticus, colon, the holiness of God? That's the primary subject of the book of Leviticus. Most people don't study Leviticus because it's extremely difficult. You've got one ritual after another, but Leviticus is extremely important too because it outlines the holiness of God. Extremely important aspect of God's infinite perfection. Oh, and then my favorite, probably yours too. God is love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all love. Now, He doesn't just function in love. We might say, I love you, 
and because I love you, I do something kind and nice to you or generous. God loves, but he is love. That's the difference between him and us. It's a hard concept to get, but he doesn't just function to love. He is love. Sometimes in some theological writings, you will see another word that's inserted here called omnibenevolence. Don't be intimidated by that word. You know what benevolence is. We have a benevolence fund, which is something that where we can be able to help people out from time to time, doing something nice for them, doing something good. Benevolence just means good. Omnibenevolence means he's all good, which is associated with his love. So sometimes you may read certain theologies that use the term omnibenevolence instead of love. Either one will work, just so you understand what's going on. God is infinitely and perfectly good. Back to my misapplication I was harping on a moment ago. If you get your mad at God and shake your fist at him, you're implying not only he's not holy, but you're also implying that he's not good. Heaven forbid, let's don't ever do that. 1 John 4, 8 speaks to God's holiness as part of, it, of his infinite perfections and his essence. God is love. John 3.16 speaks of the outworking of that aspect of his essence or attributes or his infinite perfections. For God so loved the world. We want to see something of how love works. This is back to my God revealing himself through analogy. God so loved the world that he gave. God didn't so love the world that he gave all the tea in China or all the gold in California. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It really makes me value parents who willingly send their sons and daughters off to war to preserve the freedom of a nation or of a people. That's the closest I can come to describing this sacrifice that was made. But we can get that. I can, I can understand that by analogy. If I was to say I would give up my son Bruce to die for the sins of the world, and on top of that, I'm going to judge him for those sins. For people who are my enemies, they weren't even my sons. It'd be, it'd be one thing to do it for friends. I could think on a good day, I might die for you. You might die for me. But to give, I should say little Bruce, but he's bigger than me now. Big Bruce, to sacrifice him, that's something that's almost unthinkable to me. But I can understand that by analogy. Gut-wrenching would not even begin to describe what must have gone on. I know some theologians don't like to even go there because the Bible doesn't do it, but I think by analogy we could just describe that. What a gut-wrenching thing it must have done for God to make the decision, the omnibenevolent decision, the good decision, the loving decision, to send his son to die for me. I've got to tell you, that should take all complaints and lock them in the closet, never to be uttered again. No matter what it is we think we've got to complain about. The weather, the drought, the things that we get so upset about. This guy cut me off. Hold on. God so loved the world that he gave. That's his motivation. And Paul tells us we were his enemies. We weren't his friends. Romans 5. And then Christ agrees to do it. This is love. God is also omniscient. Omniscience means that God knows everything that's knowable, both the actual and the possible, and he always knew it. While pure actuality meant that God has no potential, omniscience means that God has never learned anything. 
not one little thing in the entirety of eternity he's never learned because he always knew it all. If there is a know-it-all, it's God. He's a know-it-all. I was called one time by a, by a seminary professor. Well, actually, I'll tell you who it was. Bob Leitner, on the last time he was here, I was driving him back to the airport. And I was his intern, you know, for a, a time. And we were very close for pretty much the whole four years I was in seminary. And he told me, driving back to the airport, he looked and said, Bruce, I want to tell you something. I said, okay. He said, when I first met you, I thought you were a cocky, arrogant know-it-all. I said, okay, that's fair. He said, but I saw something, something in you that was salvageable. <laughs> so he said, I've decided, I've decided I'm going to work with you. And I just said that, and I, you know, we became friends very quickly. And I just said, you know, I appreciate that so much. And I said, because I was cocky, arrogant, know-it-all. Still am. <laughs> Try not to be. But God is know-it-all. He knows it all. He knows the actual and the possible. I don't know if we'll get an opportunity to view this. God may in eternity say there's a lot of better things to do with your time here, although it's a different aspect of time and all that. But we may consider man and say, Lord, what would have happened if I would have gone to this college instead of that college? And he can outline for you with perfect clarity every single thing that would have happened to every human being on the planet if you decided to go to one college instead of the other college. Amazing what he can do. He knows the actual and the possible. He knows who would trust Christ if given the opportunity. If they were placed in a position, he even knows that with perfect clarity. He knows everything, the actual and the possible. That is what's meant by God's omniscience. Job chapter 21, verse 22 says, Can anyone teach God knowledge? It's a rhetorical question now. There's no creature that has the knowledge that God has. By the way, I hope you've noticed I've been giving you scripture references to read. As Christians, we take our knowledge of God from the Word of God. We also take, there, is, there are some aspects that we see in nature, some aspects we get from reason, that's to be sure, but if it's, to, if it's to be solid, it must be found in God's Word. Psalm 139, verses 2 and 4, one of my favorite passages. You know when I sit down and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. He knows what I'm going to say with perfect clarity before I know what I'm going to say. And then in Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5, He determines the number of stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. What a great illustration that is. God has a name for every star. He knows exactly where it is at all times, even stars we haven't seen yet. So whatever Hubble telescope or whatever other type of telescope there is, there's a vast universe out there. I don't think we've even come close to getting to the end of God's created order. And he knows every one of them by name. And on top of that, he knows every atom and how it's functioning at every moment in the entirety of the universe. Every atom. He knows exactly where it is. I don't know if he has a name for every atom. And he knows where it is and what he's doing. That's God's omniscience. That, along with omnipresence, I think can be attributes that can either be very comforting or very scary. God knows everything. You're not going to fool him. We can fool others by expressing something that's not our true thought. And some of us get really good at that. We can keep our facial expressions pretty neutral. But with God, he knows exactly what we're thinking 
That's why Louis Craig Schaefer, when he talked about prayer, used to say, just be honest with him. Tell him your deepest, darkest doubts. Tell him what makes you happy. Tell him what you need. He knows exactly with perfect clarity. He just wants to hear you say it. He already knows what sins you've committed, too, by the way. You know that? When you confess a sin to God, you're not telling him something he doesn't already know. It's not like you're on the stand with some sort of courtroom drama. And then all of a sudden you pop up and say, oh, I did it. And everybody in the audience says, wow, I thought they were innocent. I didn't think they were guilty. God already knows what you did. The act of confessing sin is coming to an agreement with him. That, yeah, what I did was wrong. And it's an honest and open agreement. So God is omniscient. God is also omnipotent. God is omnipotent, meaning that he can do anything that is intrinsically possible to do. He can do anything that's intrinsically possible to do. Can he cease to exist? Does his omnipotence make him able to cease to exist? No. Why? The violation of it is character. He's, he's eternal. So that's what I mean by can God can do anything that's intrinsically possible to do. Can he create a rock that's so heavy that he can't lift it? No, that's an absurdity. That's not intrinsically possible. That's a logical absurdity. He can do anything that's intrinsically possible to do. The Lord does, according to Psalm 135, 6, the Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. Isaiah declared of the Lord, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? Don't let that slide by. There's no one. God has you firmly in his grip. There is no one, no created being, is more powerful than God. Remember, Satan is not a God. Satan is a created being. When it comes up to the power of God and the power of Satan, it is no contest. It's not even close. Not even remotely close. Now, when it comes to Satan's power versus human power, yes, he's more powerful than human beings. But when it comes to his power versus God's power, no contest. So if you want to get on the right side of the equation, what you need to do is get on God's side. Because you and God's majority. No matter who lines up, every other created being in the universe can line up against you. And you and God are a majority. You're going to win it. You're not going to win it. God's going to win it for you. Jeremiah adds, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for you. Jeremiah 32, 17. God asks rhetorically, Who is like me? And who can challenge me? In that context, in Jeremiah 49, 19, the answer is no one. No one's like him. No one can challenge him. Scripture also speaks of the surpassing greatness of his power in Ephesians chapter 1, 19. And that he upholds all things by the word of his power in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And then I like Luke chapter 18, verse 27. What is impossible with men is possible with God. So God is omnipotent. But God is also omnipresent, meaning that he's everywhere present. I told you a moment ago there's two attributes, God's omniscience and God's omnipresence, that are either going to be very comforting to you or they're going to be very scary to you. There's nowhere that you can go to hide from God. You can't even do it in the privacy of your own thoughts. He's there. If we're doing the right thing, that's very comforting. He never loses track of us. Other people might. We might be lost to everybody else. We're never lost to God. You may go down in a plane crash and be on one of those desert islands like Tom Hanks. 
and you are not lost today. He still knows exactly where you are. He's made provision for you, and he knows what every atom in your body is doing in every nanosecond. Back to Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Now, the psalmist is not saying he wants to, but he's just asking a rhetorical question. Where can I go? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. And then Jeremiah says, Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 23 through 26. God is also immutable. That means that he's unchangeable in his nature. We should take comfort in this. Can you see how this works with his eternality? He's always been omniscient, for example. He always will be. Nothing like that's going to change. He's immutable with regard to his being. Theologians sometimes will say he's immutable in his ontology. And that's fine. But just remember this. He's unchangeable when it comes to his nature. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, a passage we studied not that long ago. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. That has significance for Israel, and it has significance for you and me, too. The Lord has promised you and me both that if we'll place our faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ and forgive our sins and grant us eternal life, that we're going to have eternal life. We're not going to get up to heaven and him say, Golly, I know that's what I told you. But uh, the way you finished up, uh, I don't want you living up here with me. So I'm going to send you somewhere else. He's immutable, which means he keeps his promises. He keeps his promises to Israel, and he's going to keep his promises to you. The same God who's going to who keeps his promises to Abraham is the God that's going to keep his promises to you. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. I'm not going to change my mind about you. There's always going to be a future for Israel. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 13, verse 8. In Titus chapter 1, verse 2, resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. He's immutable. Chapter 1, verse 17 of James, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And finally, God is truthful. Theologically, we say God is veracity. God is truth by his very nature. We sometimes, hopefully most of the time, speak the truth. God not only speaks the truth, but he is the truth. Now, this is similar to his love. Not only does he act in love, but he is love. Not only does he speak the truth, but he is the truth. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, and right is he. You see, this combines holiness and veracity. Sometimes you'll see people, going back to holiness for a minute, sometimes people 
combine two of God's characteristics into the idea of holiness, his righteousness and his justice, and they combine them into holiness. This is where they get that from, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? You see why Tozer would say what we think about God is the most important thing about us? Because if we know God and we act consistently with what we know, we don't have to run around worrying that God's going to change his mind when we get up to heaven. The salvation wasn't going to be by grace through faith. It's going to be by grace through faith plus all the works you can do. We don't have to concern ourselves with that because he is perfect. These infinite perfections are equally true of each member of the Trinity. Some theologians characterize other infinite perfections in other ways. Norm Geisler, for example, a tremendous theologian, characterizes 34 characteristics of God. But the ones I've included here, the ones you see on the board, I've included for this reason. These are the ones that have been historically used to distinguish orthodoxy from unorthodoxy. These are classics. All the members of the Trinity possess all of these infinite perfections, completely, totally, infinitely, and, of course, perfectly. There have been people that have opposed the doctrine of the Trinity. And opponents of the Trinity especially opponents of the deity of Christ. And that's really what it's all about, is Jesus Christ being God. Like the charge that the doctrine of the Trinity was a man-made thing. It's a man-made thing that was originated by the Catholic Church in 325 A.D. at the Council of Nicaea. Before that, they say that no one ever held to the deity of Christ or the Holy Spirit for that matter. But that statement lacks any form of historical knowledge. Most of the early church fathers affirmed the Trinity long before the Council of Nicaea. And I would say all of the early church fathers affirmed the Trinity in one form or another before Nicaea. Polycarp, who was, by the way, a disciple of the Apostle John. Ignatius, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, all way before the Council of Nicaea wrote on the doctrine of the Trinity. Irenaeus said this, and I quote it, The church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and the sea, and all the things that are in them, and in one Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit. That's an early Trinitarian formula. But even though... Most of the church fathers held to the Trinity, all of them to one form or another of the Trinity. It doesn't mean that it went unchallenged. There were challenges. One of the challenges was called tritheism. That's even made today. A few misunderstood the doctrine of the Trinity and still do. Muslims accuse us of this. As the Trinity teaching polytheism. We have many gods. These would affirm the deity of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, but they claim that they were only related in a loose association. Just like you could say Peter, James, and John were all disciples. They certainly, there was no unity there. The error of this teaching was they abandoned the unity of the Trinity, the result that they taught that there were three gods, polytheism, 
rather than three persons within one Godhead. Trinitarianism is not polytheism. There's a unity in the Christian Godhead that knocks out the charge of polytheism. There's another that's called modalism. Modalism still crops up from time to time. This teaching was originated by a man named Sibelius, who erred in the opposite area of that of tritheism. Although Sibelius spoke of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, he understood all three of these as simply modes of expression or manifestations of one God. So in a practical way, this would mean that the Father judged himself on the cross for the sins of the world. Or the Father was born of a virgin. That's modalism. The teaching is known as modalism because it views one God who variously manifests himself in three modes of existence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Today, a very popular preacher in the Dallas area, T.J. Jakes, while arguing that he is Trinitarian, if you read what he actually says, he uses the same terminology that Sibelius used. He won't talk about persons within the Godhead. He talks about manifestations within the Godhead. I think that's why Lifeway Christian Bookstore, at least for a time, would not sell T.J. Jakes' material because they felt like he had crossed the line on an issue of orthodoxy. Things like, should we have a congregational form of government or a Presbyterian form of government are not issues of orthodoxy. That's why I'm very careful ever to use the word heretic. We need to reserve that for people who deny aspects of orthodoxy. So just because someone doesn't follow your view of Calvinism, for example, don't call them a heretic. That would show your own lack of spiritual sophistication. And the final attack that was in the early part of the church on the doctrine of the Trinity is one called Arianism. This is one you've probably heard of before. This is the era of the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. In the 4th century, a man named Arius, who was of North African descent, who came to Alexandria through Libya, denied the deity of Christ. Arius taught that only God the Father, he wouldn't have used the word Father, but only God was uncreated. Everything else, including Jesus Christ, was a created being. That's called Arianism. According to Arius, there was a time when Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, did not exist and then came into existence. It would have been no problem at all had Arius not gathered a following, not only in Alexandria, Egypt, but then the gate was left open, and Arius began to get a following in other places of the Christian world. So the early church had to address it. And this is where people don't understand what happened at Nicaea, so they say the Catholic Church just made up the doctrine of the Trinity. Not so. The early church fathers held to a doctrine of the Trinity. Arius denies it. Arius gains a hearing, and so Arius has to be addressed. That's what happens in 325. The church convened a council in Nicaea and appointed a man by the name of Athanasius to argue against Arius publicly in a formal debate. And after that formal debate, the doctrine of the deity of Christ, and hence the Trinity, was formalized. It was put down into writing. Before that, there was no document but the truth was realized. Because that truth was challenged, then a church council came about and it was formalized. It is critical to know that the doctrine of the Trinity 
and in particular, the doctrine of the deity of Christ were affirmed, not originated at Nicaea. So the next time your neighbors come by two by two and they'll, they'll tell you that, you know, the Trinity is not a biblical word. Matter of fact, it wasn't something that the early church held to. Roman Catholics just made that up. Then you'll know that that's not true. Early church held to it. Roman Catholics didn't make up the Trinity. Trinity is extremely important theology. It separates orthodoxy from unorthodoxy. And it helps us so much to appreciate the God that we worship. The Trinity is composed of three united persons without separate existence, so completely united as to form one God. The divine nature subsists in three distinctions, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.